0: You're listening to the Irish Times. In June 2019, Conor Gallagher writes Anacrisal Murder Trial – The Complete Story Listeners, this is the fifth and final instalment in this series. The full series can be found on the NOAA app under the story titled Anacrisal Murder Trial. The Case Before the Jury even without much of the mobile phone evidence, the prosecution had built an extremely strong case against Boy A. It consisted of three main elements, the CCTV of him in the park, the forensic evidence linking him to the scene and the lies he told Gardi, especially those about being beaten up by two unidentified assailants. The case against Boy B also had its strengths but was less clear-cut. The prosecution were relying almost completely on his Garda questioning to the extent that they made the unusual decision to show almost the entirety of his videos of interview, 16 hours worth, to the jury. Jurors normally receive only written transcripts of interviews but the prosecution believed it was vital for them to see Boy B's demeanour and the evolution of his story over the eight sessions. Only snippets of Boy A's interviews were read out as he declined to answer most of the detective's questions. Nevertheless, it only got them so far. Boy B was shown repeatedly lying to gardee but there was zero forensic evidence linking him to the killing. In order to prove murder, the prosecution needed to prove he knew the plan that day was to kill Anna. To do this they relied heavily on the admission by Boy B that Boy A had asked him a month previously if he wanted to kill the girl. The entire case against Boy B would essentially boil down to one issue. Did he believe Boy A when he said this or did he think he was joking? If the former was true Boy B was guilty. If it was the latter he was innocent. Being at the scene of a murder is not a crime. The jury would be repeatedly told, nor is failing to intervene to stop a murder. After more than six weeks of evidence, the prosecution closed their case. Neither Boy A or B gave evidence, nor did they call any witnesses in their own defence. This was their right, the jury would be reminded. The onus was on the prosecution to prove their guilt, not the defence to prove their innocence. Before closing speeches began there was some legal argument about the possibility of alternative verdicts being put before the jury. There had been some speculation lawyers for one or both of the boys would ask that the jury be allowed consider a manslaughter verdict as well as the murder verdict. However there was no such application from either party. However, After the jury began deliberations, Gageby asked the judge to inform the jury the option of manslaughter was still open to them. McDermott refused, following objections from the prosecution. This left only the question of whether the jury would be allowed to consider an alternative verdict against Boy B of impeding the prosecution of Boy A through his lies in interview. After considering the matter, the judge ruled the offence did not apply, as Boyby's interviews could not be used against Boye in evidence anyway. No alternative verdicts would be put before the jury. The boys' defences would finally become clear when their lawyers delivered their closing speeches. In a speech lasting less than an hour, Gageby focused on what he said was a lack of evidence that Boye planned to kill Anna. He never overtly said his client was connected to the girl's death, but he conceded that the jury might decide Boyer was present when the injuries were inflicted on Anna. But is there any real evidence that he planned any of this? He asked. The barrister also alluded to the idea, without directly stating it, that Boyer and Anna engaged in consensual sexual activity. Glenwood House was probably used by young people for romantic trysts, as evidenced by the presence of condom wrappers on the ground, he said. Pathology evidence showed injuries to Anna's genitals, but it couldn't be established if these occurred through non consensual activity. Counsel added it can't be ruled out that a neck swab taken from Anna showing male DNA did not result from casual intimacy. He said the case was based almost entirely on circumstantial evidence. This has to be very carefully weighed. The barrister said Boyer came from a decent, hard-working family. This is not a defence, he said, but is highly relevant to determining if Boyer planned to kill. He also warned the jury against over-interpreting the material found on his client's phone. We know young people have many devices and interests and frequently have unlimited ability to look for and find things of interest. If you took any 13 or 14-year-old boy and did a complete trawl through their devices, what are the chances that you'd find something, one or two small things, that are unpleasant? Referring to Boy B's claim of Boy A saying he wanted to kill Anna – Counsel said there is nothing to suggest this was anything more than a joke. Irish people tend to use extravagant language, Gageby said. Have your parents ever told you they'd kill you if you came home late again? In any event, jurors couldn't consider it as evidence against his client because it had come from Boy B's interview. Colgan, in his closing speech for Boy B, repeated his criticisms of the nature of the Garda interviews. He also suggested blame for Anna's death lay squarely with Boy A. There was no way Boy B would be stupid enough to call for Anna and walk her through a park full of CCTV cameras if he knew the plan was to murder her. Boy B lied to Gardee, counsel conceded, but he did so because he was traumatised by what he saw in Glenwood House. He was also scared of Boy A, who was bigger and stronger than him, and knew martial arts. Colgan dismissed the references to the Satanic Club as sensationalist evidence. He concluded by telling the jury they must find Boy B not guilty if they believed he had no knowledge of a plan to kill Anna. Jury Deliberations and Verdict Jurors began deliberating on the afternoon of Wednesday, June 12th. They would remain out for a total of 14 hours and 24 minutes over the course of five days. During deliberations there were few clues about what direction jurors were leaning. Unusually they did not come back with any questions about the law. The only requests were to re-examine some exhibits such as the bloodied stick, Boyer's gloves and the Tescon tape. They also asked for DVDs of seven of Boy B's Garda interviews. Jurors had been asked to consider the cases against the boys separately, but as time wore on it became clear both verdicts would come together. At two minutes past two on Tuesday, June 18th, word went around the second floor of the CCJ that jurors had reached a verdict. Garthie and journalists rushed towards the court which, despite being closed to the public, seemed to fill up instantly. Boy B sat with his eyes shut while tightly holding onto his mother's arm. He appeared to be doing breathing exercises. Boy A's father put his arm around his son. Have you reached a verdict on any of the counts? The registrar asked the forewoman. She replied they had. Her hand appeared to shake as she handed over the verdict paper. Boy A was guilty of the murder and aggravated sexual assault of Anastasia Creasel, the registrar announced. Boy B was guilty of her murder. The forewoman confirmed these were unanimous verdicts. There was silence in the courtroom which lasted for about 30 seconds. Boy A appeared to cry while Boy B held his head in his hands. Then Boy B's father began shouting before a prison officer told his wife he's too high, he has to go out. The father slammed the courtroom door as he left before returning a few seconds later and embracing his wife and son. Boy A's parents also wept and hugged their son but remained silent. You bunch of scumbags, you bunch of pricks, innocent boy, Boy B's father said. He clapped sarcastically at the court as the two teens were led away. Geraldine Creasel sat with her eyes closed as the verdict was read out. She and Patrick remained calm and composed. They stood and nodded to the jury as it left the room. Some members appeared to smile and nod back. The parents then embraced their friends before turning and hugging some of the gardee. Patrick even kissed one of the nearby journalists on the cheek. They thanked the prosecution team before being led upstairs to join other family members in the victim support area. Before excusing them, Mr Justice McDermott thanked the jurors and excused them from further service for life. This has been a very difficult trial, he said. I can't offer you anything apart from, of course, sincere gratitude. He told jurors they were free to go and get on with their lives. He reminded them that the restrictions on them discussing the case or revealing the boys' identities continued. The restrictions on naming the boys also continued for everyone else, he said. Boy A and Boy B were remanded in custody to Oberstown until sentencing on July 15th, 2019. In criminal trials, there is a lot of talk by the participants about facts and the truth, but such trials are often not very good at finding either. Instead, they are effective at determining one very narrow question. Is there enough evidence to show beyond a reasonable doubt an accused committed an offence? The jury in the trial of boys A and B determined that there was, but it could not determine why Anna was murdered. They could not determine why Anna was lured to an abandoned house and beaten to death. It wasn't the job of the jury to decide on the boys' motivations. That's a job for any probation and psychological experts who may be asked by the judge to assess the boys before sentence. Anna loved to dance. Throughout the trial, there was widespread public anger. Much of it expressed on social media that some of the most intimate details of Anna Creasiel's life was being put on display, while boys A and B enjoyed complete anonymity. Many wondered if the boys would be named on conviction. They won't be. It will remain a criminal offence to ever identify them as Anna's murderers. The teens will continue to be known publicly as Boy A and Boy B, the terms journalists settled on just before the trial began. We know from the evidence that while boy A is an unusual child, he had never been in trouble with Gardhi and did not drink or take drugs. He was tall for his age and skilled in martial arts. He spent a large amount of time online and liked horror movies, special effects and drawing. He also played a lot of video games. His co-accused described him to Gardi as strange, weird and not a rational thinker. Regarding Boy B, several witnesses gave evidence he was an unusually bright boy. He excelled as a student in primary school despite a lack of focus on academics in his home. His marks started to drop in secondary school as he struggled with the increased homework load. He loved to make things with his hands and was regarded as particularly skilled with technology. Like Boy A, he liked computer games but showed little interest in social media. Twice his father had bought him a smartphone and twice he had lost it. Dr Humphreys testified Boy B preferred the company of younger children as he finds them less demanding. He described this as unusual but not deviant in any way. Despite his father's best efforts, Boy B did not like sports. He preferred Pokemon and Japanese cartoons. His father described him as someone who was hungry for friendship and someone who believed everything his friends told him. Humphreys said he was friends with Boy A because it gave him kudos. He said doing things with Boy A made him a bigger presence. After his arrest, Boy A called Boy B one of his best friends, a sentiment not shared by the other teen. Boy B told Gardee the two were not close friends following a recent falling out over a set of keys. The court heard evidence he didn't trust Boy A. He told one friend he feared Boy A might snake him or set him up following the murder. Before Anna's body was found, he cast doubt on Boy A's claim that two unidentified men had caused the injuries to him. Boy B told Gardi he believed Anna caused the injuries. The murder, or perhaps the investigation, seems to have been the end of any friendship between the two. During the course of the trial the boys appeared to make a point of not interacting. They sat separately and filed out of court every day in separate groups. We can say a lot more about Anna Creasiel. Her mother said she was a girl who loved to dance. She was part of the Leakslip-based troupe Dance LA, whose members, decked in red headscarves and silver sequins, formed a guard of honour at her funeral. Anna spent hours in our front room, listening to music, practising her moves, her mother said. We can say Anna was a great singer – and wanted to learn how to play guitar. We can say her Siberian strength and height made her an incredible swimmer. We can say that she loved to volunteer for things, and shortly before her death, Anna agreed to model in a fashion show organised by older classmates to raise money for charity. Anna never lost touch with her Russian roots. A Russian flag and a matryoshka doll were placed on her coffin, Geraldine and Patrick announced the adoption of Anna in 2006 by handing their friends a similar doll containing her picture. We can say she also loved her holidays to France, symbolised by the presence of a miniature Eiffel Tower on her coffin. And we can say Anna loved her family dearly and was loved dearly in return. We can say she was someone who, as her funeral heard was never happier than when she was curled up with her mother on a Sunday watching some beautiful fairy tale princess movie while munching her favourite food, popcorn. That was the final instalment of Anacrisial Murder Trial, the complete story. It was written by Conor Gallagher and read by Grainne Brookfield. For Noah.